So this morning we're going to begin uh, our, our 2022 Faith at the Movies sermon series. Uh, this week we went out to see a movie. On Tuesday night, many of us went out to the theater here in Flint and we saw West Side Story. Now here's the thing you need to know about the Faith at the Movies worship series. There may be some light spoilers in this morning's sermon, all right? But, but here's the thing about West Side Story. The musical came out in 1957. The first movie version of the musical came out in 1961. You've had plenty of time to find out what happened happens in, in West Side Story, right? So, so, uh, so you know, if, if you don't know, that's on you this morning. I'm not going to take responsibility for spoiling this movie for anybody, all right? Uh, I will say that the spoilers in this morning's uh, message are going to be very, very light. There's, there's not going to be an awful lot given away. I will say, though, to the parents out there, wherever you are uh, who are watching, I, I do want you to know as we begin that this morning, uh, we're not going to talk, uh, we're not going to go into all the details of what happens in the movie, but we will be telling a story from the the Bible that gets into some, some fairly grown-up themes, not in a graphic way, but in a way where you might have some, some questions and uh, some conversation with younger children after, uh, after worship this morning. So parents, we just want you to be aware of that. All right, here we go then. Let's jump into a scripture reading from the Gospel of John this morning. Let's hear this story of Jesus as he was wandering through the land of the Samaritans and the things that happened on that day. This morning's scripture reading begins in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, beginning with verse 5. So Jesus came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? The word of God for us, the people of God. Many years ago, I had a conversation with a woman after worship one Sunday. In that church and at that time, I was teaching a confirmation class. We had these young people in the church who were ready to become members of the church. And so I put together a confirmation class for these young people. And they were learning about all of the usual things that young people learn about when they, when they take a confirmation course in the church. They were learning about Jesus, the life and the teachings of Jesus. They were learning about the Bible and the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They were learning about the history of the church and what does it mean to be a Methodist follower of Jesus. We were learning about all of the things that you typically learn about in a confirmation course. As part of that year's curriculum, I had also planned a field trip. I planned to take our young people on a visit to a mosque. Now, this was in the years after the September 11th attacks, after the invasion of Afghanistan, after the beginning of the Second Iraq War. This was, was during that moment in American history when a wave of anti-Muslim sentiment was sweeping across the country. 
And I decided that while I had these young people's undivided attention, I wanted to take them out to meet some of their Muslim neighbors. I wanted them to get to know some of the people who actually lived in their community. I wanted them to know the story of Muslims in America beyond what they were reading about in the headlines. I wanted to take these young people out to a mosque. And in worship one Sunday, we talked about this field trip, this upcoming field trip that the confirmation students were going to go on. And after worship that Sunday, a woman came up to me and she pulled me aside. She was agitated. I would even say that, that she was angry. And she started asking me these questions. She said, why, why are you taking our children to go and meet those people? She said, I thought confirmation was supposed to be about learning the Christian faith. What could those people possibly teach our children about the Christian faith? She said, I know everything I need to know about those people, and I don't want our children having anything to do with those people. I think about that conversation every once in a while. I was thinking about that conversation on Tuesday night as I was watching West Side Story in the movie theater with a couple dozen court streeters who were out at the theater with us that night. So this week's movie, the first movie in our sermon series this year is West Side Story. West Side Story is a film adaptation of a Broadway musical that premiered back in 1957. Now when West Side Story hit Broadway in 1957, it was a cutting edge musical. West Side Story was the first Broadway musical that put as much attention into the choreography and the dancing as it put into the songs and into the singing. And West Side Story at that time was dealing with themes and issues that were ripped straight from the headlines of the newspapers of the day. Back in the 1950s, street gangs were a relatively new phenomenon. And the newspapers in 1957 were filled with stories of gangs and gang violence and what is wrong with young people today? What are we going to do with this younger generation? And West Side Story tells the story of, of two rival street gangs in the west side of Manhattan, the Jets and the Sharks. And the Jets are a gang of, of young, white, working-class teenagers. And the Sharks are a gang of young Puerto Rican teenagers living in that same neighborhood. The movie begins, the play begins with a, a rumble, with a great big fight between these two gangs as they're fighting for territory in a neighborhood that is literally being torn apart before their eyes by powers that are beyond their comprehension, beyond their control. These two gangs get into a fight and then the police come. And they break up this fight. And after the fight, that's when we meet Tony and Maria. Now, Tony is a, is a former leader of the Jets. And he's just been released from prison. And Tony is trying to put the gang behind him. He's trying to mend his ways. He's trying to put together a new kind of a life. Maria has just arrived in New York City from, from Puerto Rico. Her brother, Bernardo, is the leader of the Sharks. And one night, Tony and Maria meet at a neighborhood dance. They lock eyes across the dance floor and sparks fly. And, and they come closer to each other and they begin to talk. And a romance develops and they begin dancing with one another. But when Bernardo sees Tony dancing with his sister, he tears them apart. He accuses Tony of defiling his sister. And, and the situation escalates to the point where the two gangs decide that they're going to have another fight, a much more violent fight than the one that happened at the beginning of the movie. The romance between Tony and Maria sets off a chain of events that will lead to violence and tragedy 
and death. Now, if this story sounds familiar, if the West Side Story is presenting us with a, a familiar story, it may be because West Side Story was inspired by a story, a play that many of us had to read back in high school. West Side Story was inspired by William Shakespeare's play, Romeo and Juliet. 400 years ago, William Shakespeare wrote the story of, of Romeo and Juliet, these star-crossed lovers, these teenagers who fall in love, but they belong to rival families, the Montagues and the Capulets, two families that operate in much the same way as street gangs operate. And, and their romance sets into motion a chain of events that leads to violence and tragedy and death. This is a story that is, is hundreds of years old. If West Side Story seems familiar, it's because it was inspired by Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Maybe you knew that, that West Side Story was based on Romeo and Juliet, but did you know that this story is actually even older than that. The story that we find of Tony and Maria and the violence and the tragedy of West Side Story, this sort of story has been around for a lot longer than, than Shakespeare's time. It's been around not just for hundreds of years, but for thousands of years, people have been telling stories very similar to the story we saw on Tuesday night at the movie theater. Jesus even would have known stories like the one we saw on Tuesday at the movie theater. In this morning scripture, reading, we find Jesus walking through the land of the Samaritans. Now, the Jews and the Samaritans were in many ways like the Jets and the Sharks of their day. The Jews and the Samaritans had an ancient hatred that went back for hundreds of years. Many Jews would go far out of their way in order to avoid passing through the land of the Samaritans, but not Jesus. Jesus says, I'm not going to allow anybody to tell me where I can and cannot walk. And so one day, Jesus leads his disciples straight through the land of the Samaritans. And as he is walking through enemy turf, as he is walking through Samaritan territory, Jesus passes by a place where there is a well. And the people in that area, they call that well Jacob's well. And there's a story behind that well. There is a story of things that happened in that place. Jesus would have known the story of that well. He would have known the story of that place because we find that story in the Bible. In the book of Genesis, in chapter 33, we read this story about the things that happened at that well. The story goes like this. There was a man named Jacob. And Jacob had done very well for himself in life. Jacob had accomplished every goal he set out to, to meet. He had built himself a, a fortune. He had many goats and sheep and camels and donkeys. And Jacob had this great big family. Jacob had 12 sons and one daughter named Dinah. He had all of those children by four different wives because that's how they rolled in the book of Genesis, right? Jacob had all of these children and all of them were teenagers, which of course must have led to many, many headaches, right? And Jacob, having accomplished everything he set out to accomplish, in life, having this, this fortune and all of these goats and sheep and donkeys and, and all of these children, Jacob said, there's really only one more thing I need to cross off my list. Now I've got to settle down. I've got to find a place. I've got to make a home for myself. And so one day Jacob packs up all of those goats and sheep and donkeys and camels. He packs up his 12 sons and his one daughter and they start off on a, a journey. They wander and they travel and they travel and they wander looking for a place to settle down, looking for a place to call home. And as they are wandering, Jacob finds a place that catches his eye. There's a, a plot of land at the bottom of a mountain and Jacob says this, this is the place we've been looking for. This is, this is where I want to call home. And so he buys that land. They're at the bottom of the mountain. And then he does what you do when you're ready to settle down. The first thing you do after you buy a piece of property and when you're ready to build a house, what's the first thing you do? You dig a well so your family, so your house can have access to water. Jacob digs a well 
And after he has dug that well, he and his 12 sons begin working on constructing a home. They work on building a house. And while Jacob and his 12 sons are constructing this home, Dinah, Jacob's daughter, says, I'm going to go out and meet the neighbors. Now remember, Dinah is a teenage girl who has been on a road trip with her 12 brothers for who knows how long. She is ready to get away from her brothers. She is ready to meet some new people. Dinah goes out wandering the neighborhood, hoping that she's going to meet some neighbors who have got some girls, some daughters, her own age. Dinah goes out into the neighborhood hoping to meet some new people and make some new friends. While Dinah is out walking the neighborhood, she meets a young man, a man named Shechem. Now Shechem is part of the most influential and powerful family in that area. Shechem is the son of a Canaanite prince. And we don't know exactly what happens when Dinah and Shechem meet along the road there. In many translations of the Bible, you'll, you'll read that, that there was an assault that took place, that, that Shechem attacked Dinah in some way, but that's not the only way of reading. That's not the only way of interpreting this story. Many Bible scholars believe that actually what happened when Dinah and Shechem met there along the road was much more like what happened when Tony met Maria at that dance. Two young people locked eyes, sparks flew, a romance developed, and the next thing you know, Shechem brings Dinah to his father, the Canaanite prince and he says I am head over heels for this girl whatever it takes I am willing to do it in order that this young woman and I can be married and so Shechem and his father they go to speak to Jacob and Shechem's father the prince he says to Jacob he says hi welcome to the neighborhood our kids are in love this could be a good thing I, I am wealthy and I am powerful and influential. You clearly have wealth and are a man of means. Let's put our two families together. Let, let your daughter marry my son. Your sons can marry my daughters. We can join forces. We can bring peace and prosperity to this whole area. That's what Shechem's father says to Jacob. And Jacob listens and he considers. But before Jacob can give an answer, Dinah's brothers jump in. And Dinah's brothers are furious. They say to Shechem, how dare you defile our sister with your filthy Canaanite hands? What makes you think that our family could ever join forces with your family? We, we are descendants of Father Abraham. We worship the one true God. We have been circumcised as a sign of our faith. And the only way we could ever consider being united with you is if you were to become circumcised as we are circumcised. You and every man in your village have to be circumcised before we even consider your proposal of marriage for our sister, Dinah. So Shechem says, okay. He really is in love. I mean, he is head over heels for this girl. He says, okay, and Shechem and his father go back to the village and they make what must have been a very, very persuasive speech because all of the men of the village agree. They agree to be circumcised, every single one of them. And so this mass circumcision happens there in the village. Every man, every man in the village is circumcised and they're in pain, but they're excited about this new family moving into their community and bringing all this wealth and prosperity with them. They're excited. They're looking forward to what they think is going to be a wedding. What they don't know is that Dinah's brothers were never sincere in their offer. They were never, ever going to allow this wedding to actually happen. What happens next is this. On the third day, while all of the men in the village are weak and in pain from their procedure, Dinah's brothers, who remember are just teenagers themselves, like the young people in West Side Story, they creep into the village and then they murder Shechem. 
And they murder his father. And they murder every man. They massacre every man in the village. And then they seize their sister and they bring her home. And when they arrive home, Jacob looks at his sons covered, drenched in blood. And he says, what have you done? He says, now we can't live in this place. Nobody in this area will ever trust us. Everyone will be afraid of us. Anyone could attack us at any moment. We cannot possibly remain in this place now. We have got to move on and look for a new place to call home. And so that's what they do. Jacob packs up his 12 sons and his daughter. He packs up all those goats and sheep and camels and donkeys and they leave that place. They leave a pile of bodies behind. They leave that land behind. They leave that well behind. And that land remains unoccupied for hundreds of years. The well stands there outside the village. It becomes the place that people go when they don't want to meet anybody else, when they're getting their water for the day. That well stands there for hundreds of years, almost 2,000 years. That well stands there at the foot of the mountain until one day Jesus happens to be passing by. And as he is walking through that place, that place where Jesus knows the story of the well, he knows the story of what has happened in that place, he knows the story of the village, and he sees a woman drawing water from the well. And so Jesus walks over, and he sits down next to the well, and he says to the woman, I would love to have a drink of water. And the woman says, what are you doing? Who are you? Why are you a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan? And Jesus' disciples are shocked and even angry, and they start giving Jesus these looks of disapproval, and they start shooting him all kinds of side-eye. But Jesus ignores their disapproval. He ignores their side-eye, and he continues talking to this woman. Why does Jesus sit at this well? Why does he talk to this woman? Because Jesus, more than anyone, who has ever lived understands that we cannot go on in the way that we have been living. For as long as there have been human beings, for as long as there have been people, we have been dividing ourselves up into tribes and clans and gangs and we have been coming up with rules about who is allowed to talk to whom and who is allowed to walk where and when those rules get broken, what happens? There is violence, there is tragedy, there is death and Jesus in his life, Jesus in his teaching, Jesus in his ministry says no more of this. Jesus says to his disciples, God is going to show us a better way. And then in his life, in his example, Jesus proves that we can live in a different way. We can have community without having enemies. We can have love without having hate. We can have inclusion without exclusion. We can have justice without vengeance. Jesus in his life shows his disciples that there is, there is a better way. I don't remember what I said to that woman all those years ago when she pulled me aside after worship. I remember what she said to me. I don't remember what I said to her. I like to think that if that conversation happened again, if someone were to ask me those same questions today, I like to think that the answer I would give would be something like this. We don't go to visit mosques and synagogues. We don't go to make friends with non-Christians in order to learn from them the way of Jesus. We do these things in order to live the way of Jesus. We do these things because Jesus taught us that those who live by the sword will die by the sword. We do these things because Jesus taught us and we believe that somewhere, somehow, we need to find a better way of living. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for these stories in which we find wisdom. 
Help us to learn from the tragedies. Help us to learn from the mistakes that generations before us have made. And give us the courage and give us the wisdom not to repeat those same mistakes, not to repeat those same stories, those same tragedies in our own generation. God, give us the courage to talk to people who are not like us. Give us a heart to love people who are supposed to be our enemies. God, teach us how to live as Jesus lived, talking to anyone, walking anywhere, carrying within himself not a hint of hate. In Jesus we pray. Amen.